Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 74, The Road to the Nazi Olympics. By the summer of 1936, Hitler and his Nazi party had been in power for just over three years, and in that time they had wrought massive changes throughout the country. Most obvious was their political stance and the laws that proceeded from that against the Jews. And this attack, sometimes physical, sometimes legal, but always growing, started the very first year Hitler became Chancellor. Within months of January 30th, 1933, the first concentration camps were opened, and those the Nazis did not like were thrown in. At first, they were political enemies, of which a fair number were Jewish. And though the systematic killing did not start right away, the inmates were treated brutally. Of course, the Nazis filmed the men in the camps being treated very differently. All were eating well, and some smiled for the cameras. How bad could it be? But, like Winston Churchill, anyone who bothered to read Mein Kampf, and the English version came out a year after the German version did in the mid-twenties, or even a synopsis of it, they knew its core message. The Jews were the scourge over the world. If Germany wanted to reclaim its former glory, those people had to be forced out of German society and the country. This might not have sat too well with the average German, but the Nazi party had long ago developed their selling techniques. In the same breath that spoke so poorly of the Jews, the message also said that the German people were the master race. It was just and natural for them to do whatever needed doing to become great again. This was the bit of sugar that made the medicine go down better. As we have seen during the 1930s, it wasn't a loud marching of legal attacks against the Jews. Rather, it was the drip, drip, dripping, as laws were passed that stripped away everything from the German Jews. First, they could no longer work for the government, nor the civil service, nor journalism, nor radio, nor farming, nor teaching, nor the theater, nor films. Then, in 1934, they couldn't work at the stock exchanges. So, they couldn't work, farm, or practice their chosen profession, and within a short time, they couldn't even be customers, buying food, goods, or medicines. This reign of terror was more formalized by the so-called Nuremberg Laws of September 15, 1935. It continued the job of debasing these people that was started in 1933. Jews were no longer German citizens, but rather were now just subjects of the Third Reich. Furthermore, no marriage was allowed between a Jew and an Aryan, nor intimate relations either. Also, Jews could no longer hire Aryan servants under the age of 35. With Hitler's hatred, and it must be said, fear of the Jews, the last thing he wanted and this is something he obviously obsessed about, was some young German, read Aryan maiden, raped or seduced by some lecherous Jew. Again, by the time of the 11th modern Olympic Games that were held in Berlin, the Jews of Germany couldn't work, couldn't purchase, certainly couldn't stay in a hotel, and were beaten in public with impunity. 
But they weren't the only persecuted class of people. The Nazi state could not allow their country to put faith in any particular church above their dedication to Hitler's party. The leader had studied history enough to know that he needed the people's passions and desires, personally and nationally, to be in line with his, if he was to make his Third Reich last for a thousand years. Certainly, the next few years, while he concentrated power unto himself, in order to deal with Germany's problems, as he saw them. During his early reign, for that's what it was in all but name, and would be, in fact, by 1942, Hitler needed peace with the powerful Catholic Church, as well as those of the Protestant faith. Which is why Article 24 of the party program stated, Liberty for all religious denominations in the state, so far as they are not a danger to the moral feeling of the German race, was essential. The party stands for positive Christianity. Hitler would go on to praise the positiveness of the Christian faith in March of 1933, when the Reichstag turned over its power to him after the mysterious Reichstag fire of February 27th of that year. He then promised to safeguard the church's role in safeguarding the souls of the German people. And it was his ambition to have a peaceful accord between church and his state. This declaration, along with a concordat with the Vatican on July 20th of the same year, eased the growing fears of many of the faithful who put their support behind the new chancellor. The agreement was signed by von Papen and then Papal Secretary of State Monsignor Pacelli, later Pope Pius XII, who would have an ever-antagonistic relationship with the Third Reich. But this concordat was nothing more than a means to an end for Hitler, as the agreement was broken by the Nazis just five days later. First, the Nazis passed a sterilization law against those of mental defects, which greatly bothered the Catholic Church, and it was all downhill from there. The Catholic Youth League was then attacked. Later, priests, nuns, and laypeople were arrested on made-up charges of immorality or smuggling foreign currency, which the economically weak Germany needed badly. Within a few years, priests were being executed, the privacy of the confessional was violated, and many Catholic publications were suppressed. The Protestant clergy and faithful were treated the same. So why were the German people tolerant of such tactics? Firstly, the Nazi party had most, if not all, of the guns, were well organized, were the legal authority, had eyes and ears everywhere, and quickly created a climate of fear and expectant obedience. But there was more to it than that. What could the people do? Yet it must be remembered that Hitler had, by 1933, woven a tale of woe of all the wrongs done to Germany, and that only he could fix them. In fact, this was his sole purpose of desiring leadership of the German state. The humiliating shackles of Versailles tore into almost every German heart. Anyone who claimed their goal was Germany's freedom from this debasing document was already halfway to claiming the people. And Hitler made it clear that, one, the Versailles Treaty was solely to destroy the German state 
and its people, and was a product of the Jewish-controlled democracies. It was his job, nay, his duty, with the people's help to rid themselves of Versailles and its Jewish creators. For this, the people of Germany were willing, and willingly so, to give up some of their rights, to be free again, to pursue their national goals. As could be heard by many German workers early on in Hitler's leadership, the people no longer had the right to starve. This was supported by a saying drilled into the people, common interest before self. Between this and the severe reduction of the unemployment rate by 1936, the German public were willing to tie themselves to the Nazi bandwagon. It got results. So, by the mid-1930s, the world knew that Nazi Germany had become a police state. Its citizens could and did disappear from the streets, and that was not illegal. That there were some 50 concentration camps throughout the country. One in particular, Oranienburg, was just north of the Berlin suburbs of the capital, a mere half-hour's journey from where the Olympic Games would be held in 1936. That Germany had been awarded the right to the Games, that Jews had already been excluded from all German sports clubs and associations, that competition between Jews and Aryans was forbidden, that non-political sport was forbidden by the state that the Nazis had declared that fair competition between Aryans and blacks was impossible because of their genetics, their strength gained through centuries of slavery, that there was no such thing in Germany of an individual amateur athlete. Everyone was a part of the state. And yet, despite all this, Nazi Germany was open to all who cared to visit, that its people could come and go, mostly, as they wished. Yet there were restrictions on foreign currency leaving the country, again, due to Berlin's desire to strengthen its economy. It was certainly more open than Stalin's Soviet Russia, where many more people wished to leave due to his industrial programs that were paid for by the selling of the people's harvests instead of using it for local consumption. And the International Diplomatic Corps knew even more of the Nazi state than the general public. During the year that Hitler had come to power, one member of the Social Democratic Party, Gerhard Seeger, was put into Oranienburg for six months for defying the Nazi party. But then he was able to escape and write of his experiences, called A Nation Terrorized. Seeger had been in the German Reichstag for years, thus his story was credible. The Nazi party reacted to his publication and escape by arresting his wife and 17-month-old child, who were themselves placed in a concentration camp. When Seeger came to Britain, he was introduced to Lady Astor, who set up two speeches by him to be delivered in the House of Commons. Then she had the women members of Parliament press Leopold von Horsch the German ambassador to Britain, for the release of Seeger's family. If this did not happen, the ladies of position would begin asking questions throughout the right circles of British society that the Nazi leaders would rather not answer at this time. The mother and child were released 
to house arrest, but escaped the country later with the help of a conservative MP. So, as for what the Nazi state was and was not, British officials could not help pretend ignorance. American society and politicians were in the same boat, as Karl Billinger, a German member of the Communist Party, published his own book in New York entitled Fatherland in 1935 that spoke of his time in a concentration camp where he was beaten with a horse whip and daily humiliated. Thus the world knew what the Nazis were, if they wanted to know. Germany had come very close to hosting the Fifth Modern Olympiad, but that honor went to Stockholm in the summer of 1912. However, the runner-up was given the right for the next games, in 1916. In the excitement, Germany built a brand new stadium for the occasion, in the Grunwald, past the western limits of Berlin. Of course, as this was 1913, the structure was dedicated to Kaiser Wilhelm. Meanwhile, an organizing committee started putting together how the games would be laid out, all under the direction of the committee's chairman, Dr. Theodore Lewald, and committee secretary, Carl Diem. But the Sixth Olympiad never came off, as Europe was, by then, deep within its most destructive war ever. When the conflict was uneasily settled, Germany's shame knew no bounds, as the athletes from this proud country were banned from the Olympiads of 1920 and 24. So, as the country struggled to reinvent itself, pay the reparations for starting the war, and deal with the rising far-right and far-left political parties, Chairman Lewald and Secretary Diem spent their waking hours attempting to gather allies of their own who could help them present their case as to why Germany should be allowed, once again, to take part in the competitions. To some degree, their hard work, and honestly, their well-known reputation for adhering to the spirit of the Games, allowed Germany to participate by 1928 in Amsterdam, and the German athletes rose to the occasion, winning more medals than anyone else except the United States. Building on this, the two German athletic committee men continued on with their work, which paid off. In the summer of 1932, at Barcelona, Spain, itself in competition to hold the Games, Germany was awarded the Olympic Games of 1936 by a vote of 43-16. to 16. The brand new stadium in Barcelona would have to wait. The German Organizing Committee held its first meeting on January 24, 1933, just days before Hitler came to power. By then, Lewald was close to 70 years old, but now the president of the association. Karl Diem, 51 years of age, was still secretary, but he was in the perfect position to make sure his imaginings of how the games would take place would come true. But then, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party did come to power on January 30, 1933, and their nefarious ways were too soon made evident. In fact, Committee President Lewald was amongst their first victims, as he was removed from his position. One of his grandparents 
had been Jewish. Yet the reaction by the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, was such against the newly installed Nazi party, still filling its ways into the halls of power, that Berlin backed down. Partially. Luwald was allowed to stay on, but Diem, the non-Jew, was to do most of the work. Right away, Diem and his team took one look at the stadium, built in 1913, and knew it was too small, its seating capacity too limiting. But what's more, the inadequate stadium stood on land owned by the Berlin Racing Association, which had stringent rules about any enlargements or modifications. The only solution seemed to be, and it conveniently answered both major questions, was to sink the center of the arena. Having a solution to their main problems, the committee garnered the help of the sports club, entities taken very seriously by Germans all over the country. And yet, the initial tally was underwhelming. The people, just like the various countries, were struggling to make ends meet, and the ever-dominating Nazi party was not that interested in the games. What's more, the competitions were still three years away. Food had to be put on the table today. Clearly, something had to give. So, on March 16, 1933, Luwald and the mayor of Berlin were brought into Hitler's presence. The two men tag-teamed their glorious leader and spoke of what the games could mean to Germany, but that they were having problems, financial problems. This was the last thing any leader wants to hear, especially this one, who had already made plans to rearm his country and employ hundreds of thousands of men with public works. Still, Hitler, the politician, knew how to play the game. He promised the men that his attitude had changed from before he came to power, when he proclaimed that the games were nothing more than an invention of Jews and Freemasons. Now he would do all he could to help. In truth, Hitler knew that the games had to go on, that he had to play his part during the ceremonies, but honestly, his thoughts and passions were elsewhere. The planning, building, and fundraising continued without much enthusiasm. After looking over the area's weather records, the games were set to occur between August 1st and the 16th. Music was then discussed, but all over, everyone concentrated on keeping the costs down. It was deemed important to just get through this. At least Germany would be back on the Olympic stage. But then... On October 5, 1933, a group of men, consisting of Hitler, Luwald, Dr. Frick, Minister of the Interior, Reich sport leader Hans Tschammer und Alsten, and architect Werner March, visited the Grunwald area. The men first showed their leader models of the stadium before and after its planned augmentation. Then Hitler was taken to the rather drab site itself. They came upon a few men who were digging up the floor. By now, Hitler was used to asking questions, bluntly so, and getting immediate responses. So, he half-heartedly pointed at the men and straightaway asked, Why are they doing that? 
Luwald came forward and explained of their inability to change the structure radically. So they would instead lower the floor and add more seats. Without moving his body after asking the first question, the German leader then asked, Is the race course necessary? Luwald, perhaps seeing the possibility of an opening, again stepped forward. He replied that Berlin did in fact have two other race courses at Hoppengarten and Karlshorst. In fact, this course had been losing money for years. Only then did Hitler's body move and his eyes lit up. He seemed to the men to grow in size. His next words were, the race course had to go. It was a declaration, not a proposition. If needed, the Berlin Racing Association could have another course somewhere else later. But as for here, this whole area had to be remade and made worthy. Worthy of what, the men asked their leader. Hitler's eyes now had a light. A stadium that could sit 100,000 people, he replied. Then he added, the stadium must be built by the Reich. It will be the task of the nation. If Germany is to stand host to the entire world, her preparations must be complete and magnificent. And de Fuhrer was not done. Besides the stadium, Hitler also wanted an open-air theater. He had not forgotten how he had come to power, with his speeches, before ever-growing crowds of people. So the architect, March, showed him the perfect place, not far off, for the open theater a naturally hollowed-out space in the Muriel Valley. Hitler replied that it was perfect, his voice taking on a different quality. But he still wasn't done. Ideas seemed to be coming to him left and right, if his facial expressions were anything to go by. He would also have a parade ground, which would be next to the arena, and he wasn't thinking about a space for just tens of thousands of people, but hundreds of thousands. By now, the leader's arms were outstretched as if he could envision the entire complex. Remember, he was a former architect. When the arms came down, he said before marching off, work was to begin at once. Luwald had the best ally imaginable, but there was a dark side to his ally. Hitler would make the games his. He would have them dancing to his tune, or there would be no games at all in Germany, as the German Olympic Committee was about to find out. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, now is the time for another Harry's giveaway. So I've got a new set in. It's got a really nice handle. It's so nice, I almost want to keep it for myself, but that wouldn't be fair. It's like a gold copper color to it. I don't know. It's really nice. Trust me, you'll like it. So it's the razor, uh, extra blades, the shaving cream, and a sampling of their daily face wash. So um, just all you have to do to enter is to send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and just put something like um, gold handle in the subject matter so I can group all those and then I can uh, have my daughters do a drawing. So we'll probably do that in about... I don't know, about two, maybe three weeks, it depends. But just send me an email to the podcast at gmail.com and put gold handle in your subject area. And that way I can't be sneaky and switch out my old one for this one, which I really like, but um, 
please send in your entries and good luck to everybody. And again, just thank you for being members.